While you're turning to Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, when you get there, all right, say amen. Wow, y'all are quick. You cheated, didn't you? You already had something there. Your Bible just fell open automatically, right? All right. Malachi chapter 3 tonight, we're going to look here in just a few moments. Let's, let's have just a word of prayer real quick. Father, we love you so very, very much, and we're grateful for the bountiful blessings that you bestow upon us each and every day. Lord, may we not ever take them for granted, but may we be uh, thoughtful to give you thanks and to praise you for your great goodness to us. We love you tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Malachi chapter 3. Now, this is Malachi 3 and 4, the last little section of the Old Testament, the last part of the minor prophets we've been studying for more than five years. Now, I've yet to go and see how many messages have accumulated in those five years, because I know we've missed some here and there for different events and so on, uh, but I will have that information later to see how much. And anyway... Uh, it's just one of those interesting things. Maybe it might be interesting to you. It may not. Uh, whatever. Um, but anyway, these final two chapters are probably the most, uh, they're the most familiar with Malachi as opposed to chapters 1 and 2. We're not real familiar with chapter 1 and 2 because the moment that anybody says Malachi, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Tithes and offerings. But that's not everything that's in Malachi. We've already learned that, right? You know, from the first two chapters especially, because the children of Israel seemed to have this constant problem. And it was in, in whether it was the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, uh, no matter what part of time that it was, whether they were in captivity, coming just, just coming out of that captivity, uh, or if they'd been out of it for a little while. They just had, and it was a roller coaster ride sure enough for them. And, and so there, there was a huge lack of some things. And one of the greatest lacks was the spiritual leadership. We've noted that in chapters 1 and 2. Because God had made a covenant with Israel and with the tribe of Levi. Uh, but yet they have, they have uh, messed some things up. They, they just didn't follow through with all that God had instructed them to follow through with. And so there's a series of questions Malachi points out a problem, and then the children of Israel, whether it's the nation at large and the political leadership, or whether it's the spiritual leaders, whether it was uh, uh, the priest, or whether it was the members of the hierarchy of the tribe of Levi, whomever, uh, they ask, well, what are you talking about? You know, they just, they didn't see it for themselves. You know, I, I find this to be true just in human nature. Sometimes we have our blinders on when it's us. You know, it's, it's easily pointed out when it's somebody else, right? Oh, we, we don't have a problem pointing somebody else's errors out. Right? Y'all with me on this? All right? Because we can see them very carefully, all right? And, we, and I mean, it's, it's, it's like bold, italicized, underlined, you know, uh, fireworks sparking out when somebody else does wrong. But when we do wrong, what are you talking about? Oh, I uh, yeah, uh, uh, am I right? All right, all right. So, uh, quite honestly, that's, that's not the way it ought to be. We, we actually should look at ourselves and compare ourselves with the Lord. 
But too often we begin to compare ourselves with other people. And that becomes a problem. So what's going on here in the last two chapters of Malachi? Well, uh, we find something interesting. The end of chapter 2 has a question in it. And so I didn't mention this last time, but we're going to read that question. And then immediately at the beginning of chapter 3, Malachi begins to answer that question. Malachi begins to answer it with his pen, but it is actually the Lord who is speaking, as we will learn, that, 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 he will, that we will see this. Now, the, 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 the full part or the, uh, the, the areas of the last two chapters are filled with a couple of things that are important to us. Um, those two things are the coming of Jesus Christ, the first time in Bethlehem, And also the coming of Jesus Christ in power and glory as the Messiah. Those two things are seen more uh, openly in chapter 3 and 4 than in the first two chapters. The the first two chapters, uh, you know, again, not as well known, but there are some things that fit together as we connect the dots with the first two chapters and the last two chapters. So... It, it often occurs with the prophets, and we've learned this as we've studied all throughout, that oftentimes they did not distinguish between whether it was the first coming as Jesus was incarnate in the flesh or his second coming in power and glory. They, they couldn't see it. You know, They were writing down what God told them to write down, uh, but there were some elements missing because here we are living in this age. We've seen all those things that's happened in the past. And uh, it, it's a great reminder of what God has done in the past. But then when, you, when we look at it and study Scripture, we learn that there are some things that, wait a minute, this, this hadn't happened yet. And so there's a future event that's going to take place. Well, that's what happens in these last two chapters as well. And especially in verse number one, we're going to get there uh, in just a second. So, so there's a joining. There's a joining together of the first coming and the second coming of Christ. So when we say the second coming, I, I do not mean the rapture. When I say the second coming here, we're talking about when God's judgment comes upon the earth. All right. So when God's judgment comes on the earth, God's going to be sitting on His throne and He'll be judging the nations, judging the people. Uh, there's going to be a lot of things happening during that time. So, so Malachi sees that. Malachi writes about that. The Lord's giving him this information. So let's, let's look at this. I want to start with the very last question of chapter 2. And then we'll go right into chapter 3 tonight. So let's, let's read a little bit. Notice what the Bible says. Where is the God of judgment? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now watch verse 2. But who may... Abide the day of his coming. And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. 
that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. And we'll stop reading, reading right here to conserve a little bit of the time. There's, there's uh, a, a lot we have to unveil here in these verses. So uh, Malachi begins with something very strong. And that strong emphasis is the very first word of verse 1 of chapter 3. And it's the word behold. What is that? It's behold to the congregation of Israel. Behold to the leadership, spiritual leaders, the political leaders in that day. It's behold to the nation of Israel, to everybody that is listening and, and what is about to happen here. So here's what we're going to talk about tonight, all right? Jesus is coming. He's coming. And that's what Malachi is talking about here, all right? He begins talking about that. Jesus is coming. Let's, let's look at the first thing. The first thing we find in verse number 1 is the reporting. So how does this reporting begin? Well, let's back up again. Let's ask the question. Remember, we've been talking in chapter 2. If we go back and read the beginning of verse number 7, notice the question here, or, or Malachi says, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied Him? Or you've exhausted the Lord. We, we, we emphasize that a little bit. You've exhausted God. He is so tired of your stuff. All right? All right? I almost said another word, but that probably wouldn't have been good. But he says, and, and then you say, wherein have we wearied thee? Wherein have we exhausted you? It's impossible to exhaust God. No, there are times in which God says, I've had enough of you. He said it numerous times in Scripture. I don't have the time to point all of them out. But there comes a point in time God says, I've had enough. This is it. It's done. And so he's at that point with the nation of Israel right here. You've wearied the Lord. You've exhausted the Lord. And, they say, and then when they say this, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delighteth in them. God delights in everybody. He loves everybody. He's not tired of their evil and all that stuff. No, God really gets tired of evil. There will come a point in time, it, it appears right now that many are getting away with the wrongs and the unrighteousness and, and, and the palantering and all the things that they do right now. But there comes a point in time in which God says, enough is enough. So then they ask the question, well, where is the God of judgment? So where's he at? Interesting question. So now Malachi tells us, and here's the report. Behold. That word behold, it's an exclamation or it's an interjection. It's, it's uh, I want everybody to pay attention. Now, uh, now, I could really scream loud the word behold tonight to get everybody's attention. And, and those who are really not paying attention would, uh, you know, it, may, it might cause a little bit of fear to come over you because I, I could get potentially really, really loud. But I'm not going to do that, all right? 
See, some of you jumped as soon as I said that. So the, I use the word not as an interjection. So he's saying, behold, listen to me. Pay attention to what I'm telling you. Okay. Preachers do that for emphasis sake. Sometimes he does that because somebody's about ready to nod off. Nobody in this church does that. Uh, sometimes the interjection is to announce a surprise. Or sometimes here, as in this case, he is actually giving to us hope and expectation. He is, there is a certainty to something that is getting ready to happen. That's why he's saying, behold, I need everybody to listen to what I'm getting ready to tell you. There's something extremely important and you don't want to miss it, miss, miss it at all. It actually has an emotion emotional tone with it. Malachi is very emotional at this point because he's wanting to assure the entire nation of Israel that Jesus is coming. So here's the report. I'll send my messenger. Now, we have to understand first of all who's speaking, right? Do we understand who's speaking? Okay, we go to the end of the verse and we learn who's speaking. Sometimes you've got to read ahead in order to understand the first part. So the last phrase of verse number 1 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, right? So it's the Lord of hosts who is speaking. And so the Lord of hosts says, I'm going to send my messenger. The ungodliness of the people has caused a reaction of the Lord here. And Malachi both, okay? He sees it as well. And to, to some kind of reaction... To some, a, a, a reaction is, is a thrill. To some, to others, it brings an element of fear. And so what Malachi is doing, I, I need you to, to understand for Malachi, it was exciting because he says, God's going to send a messenger. Oh, Jesus is coming. But to everybody else that was living in unrighteousness, there's like, oh, no. He's coming. Judgment's coming. It's not like God hadn't done it already in the past. It's not like we haven't seen it in, let's see, uh, there's Hosea, there's Joel, there's Amos, <laughs> need we go on? Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and here we are, Malachi, he's doing it again. So all of these, all of these prophets have, have already mentioned, needless to say, we can even go back further to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. We can see, see it in all of them. They were all contemporaries together at some point in time in the history of, of, of Israel. And so what we find is that they're wanting an, a, a reaction. And, and some are thrilled and some are not so thrilled. They're, they're fearful. So now we have to determine something else. Who's the messenger? He says, I will send my messenger. Every indication, you've heard it preached numerous times before, no doubt. There are some who want to try to argue and dispute the identity of the messenger. But it is very clear, not only from here in this prophecy, but also in the New Testament. When Jesus came the first time as a babe in Bethlehem, he had somebody to precede him by six months. And his name was John. All right, John the Baptist. John had a great message, didn't he? He had a simple message. 
And his message was so simple, they thought this guy's lost his mind. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, that's all he had to say. Remember when Jonah walked into town? And Jonah had a very short message as well. Repent, for the judgment of God is coming. And everybody in town got saved. Man, that's Holy Spirit, Holy Power, God-given conviction. And the same thing happened with John the Baptist. His message was so powerful in that day. So, but, but, but here's the thing. So when the Lord of hosts, and remember, Lord of hosts is the one who is the Lord over everything that has been created. He's the Lord over the heavens, the angels of heaven, the earth, all the created beings on the earth, the human beings on the earth, everything. He's the Lord over all of those things. There is a cultural thing for that part of the world, that when eastern kings traveled and their caravan or entourage would, would, would go to another uh, village or city or country or whatever, they would always send somebody ahead to remove all obstacles. Anything that would prevent the safe travel or anything that might would hinder the travel of the king and his caravan, that somebody was going ahead. You know, it, back in the... Back in the 1800s out west, they had scouts that would go and look ahead for the wagon trains. You know, well, there's engines on that hill, so let's go to the other side, all right? You know, so, so in, in that day, though, the, the culture was quite different, and they would go ahead and make sure the road was, was cared for. You wanted the king to have the best ride ever. No, we didn't want him to have to wait for the tree that had fallen over in the, in, in the way. To, to, you wanted it out of the way. But there's something quite different when it comes to John the Baptist. So what was his purpose? Was his purpose to, to prepare the way? Absolutely. As he says here in the text, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. But it was quite different because Jesus was not coming in a caravan or, or an entourage in that way. He was coming for, for, uh, for the opposition. He was coming to prepare the way to remove the opposition. To remove the opposition by preaching a message of repentance and, and conversion. A, a message of, that would, would cause the sinner to wind up in hell. You don't need to do that. You don't have to go to hell. You can repent. You can trust Jesus. You can trust the king who's coming. You don't have to do that. And So that was John's message. I'm trying to tell you that Jesus saves. I'm trying to tell you that all you have to do is repent and put your faith and your trust in Him and, 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 and you'll have an eternal home in heaven. That's what John's message was. So what would that do? That would cause the people to repent from their unrighteousness and they would see that they had hope because at that time they didn't have any hope. They were living under Roman oppression. The Pharisees, and along with the Sadducees and others, had, had taken the temple and, and taken the worship of the temple, and, and it was uh, basically meaningless. While in the days of Herod, while, while John the Baptist was, was alive and preaching, in fact, his message was so strong. Whether a person was wealthy or poor, John's message touched them. 
But what happened, in, even in those days, the, the temple was, was, uh, had this beautiful, ornate uh, decorations. And it was, it was a glorious sight to behold. And Herod wanted to make sure that anybody that come into town would see the beauty of the temple there. But what they did is they, they made it a, 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 a den of thieves. They made it a place where they could merchandise and all that. Remember when Jesus, one of the first things he did, he walked into the temple and he was so angry that he turned the tables over and he said you've made this a den of thieves the house of God is not for merchandising this place is to be a place of worship that's what they had turned it into John was trying to relieve the oppression the spiritual oppression that the children of Israel were under at that day to prepare the way of Christ was in, in that Manner. Animals in, 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 that, in that day were brought and they were, uh, they were insufficient. They were, they were not uh, animals that were ready for sacrifice. They, those animals that, that were brought, they were uh, unfit. They weren't ready for worship. God had been silent for 400 years and the people had become comfortable in their way of sacrificing. Oh, it doesn't matter. Just take any old lamb you got. That was not God's way. Hmm. The Pharisees had actually had dominated the religion in that day and the people were just going through the motions. There wasn't any movement on their heart at all. But when John came to town... And John preached a message that started pricking their heart and convicted them. Y'all remember Herod's daughter, right? Wife and daughter. Remember that situation? She just didn't like him. What you want for your birthday, honey? The head of John the Baptist. Hmm. I think it was because of the conviction. Conviction that she had had received. You know, there was so much rebellion in that day, rebellion against God. And now the children of Israel were rebelling against Rome that the people were looking for somebody to come along and relieve them from that oppression, relieve them from, from that. They wanted somebody to come in and conquer in a military style. That wasn't what Jesus came to do. They wanted to be liberated from that oppression, but Jesus wanted to liberate them from sin. Not just a physical oppression, not just a political oppression. They wanted to, they wanted to be delivered from Rome, and, and, and he would do that. But instead, they failed to trust him. Because when he came, they rejected him. He had so much to offer them. John's message was a message of truth, a message of hope. And the only way to find peace is found in the message of repentance. That was John's message. They were not looking for John as he came on such this, this kind of arrival. He, it was, I think it was unexpected. I think they didn't expect John to come and, 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 and do that way. But notice this. Look, look what the text says. Look at this. Behold, I will send my messenger. He shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord... Whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. You see that? Suddenly come to his temple. Now, we can look at this in two lights, two ways. We do find scripture that points to the coming of Christ the first time, right? 
Isaiah tells us that a babe will be born of a virgin. We're also told in Scripture that, that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. All of that came true. And so they should have had their eyes on him. So it's not like Jesus came and it's like he just magically appeared. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that they were not ready. They weren't ready then. And guess what? They're not ready now. So either time Jesus comes, whether it's in Bethlehem or whether it's in the return, they're not going to be expecting it. But watch this now. Look at this. Here's where it gets interesting in the, in the first one. All right, the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Now, when Jesus came, remember where he came to? He came to the temple. I just told you about that one. He came and overthrew the tables. That was one of the first things he did when he came in his ministry and so on. He came to his temple there. So, so watch what happens now. He said, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come. So there is a connection with a second coming in the part, second part of verse number one. So who is the messenger of the covenant? The word messenger here is the term that we, we find oftentimes in scripture as angel or angel of the Lord. So this is a reference to the appearance of Jesus Christ. Now when Jesus Christ comes back the next time he is going to fulfill his promise and <clears throat> excuse me he's going to fulfill the covenant that he had made with Abraham Isaac Jacob David and so on so he is the messenger of the covenant he is the angel the theophanies of the old testament the appearance of Christ in the old testament as he will come and fulfill that covenant now if we fast forward he is also the fulfillment of the new covenant we have a new covenant according to hebrews a new covenant that he has made with us and he is the fulfillment of that covenant as well so so if we can if we can tie this together in verse number 1, and we know who's speaking, right? The last phrase says, thus saith the Lord of hosts. So it's God who's talking, and he's saying, the Lord whom you seek is suddenly going to come. Now when Jesus comes, he's going he's to be unexpected, because we don't know the day or the hour, right? All right. Now, even those who do not believe are not going to expect him to come. Even after, watch this now, even after the rapture of the church, even after when he comes back in, in power and glory, Revelation 19, they're not going to expect that either. They're going to go through life as if nothing happened. You know how I know that? Because that's human nature. And we all know that as well, right? Because we, we can see, when, when we see certain things happening, listen, when a tragedy happens, everybody comes to church, oh, praise, you know, we need to look to God, and, and that happens. That's happened on numerous occasions when tragedy has hit uh, the United States of America. You know, been times in which, you know, in the, in the Vietnam War the era of time, people were at church more than they were anywhere else. You know, and, and then it kind of drifted off. And, and then when 9-11 hit, people, I mean, churches were packed because, man, America's been attacked. And, and, and now, now where are we at? Yeah, they forget. I know the theme of that is never forget. Well, people have forgotten. They've forgotten what has happened. 
They've forgotten that, that, that God is still a, a God of judgment and righteousness and so on. So all of those things are, are happening. So, so what we find is this. That the sudden coming is unexpected, whether it is Jesus coming after the rapture, seven years after the, the rapture takes place, then he comes back in great glory. They're not going to expect that. They're not going to expect him to come and set his feet down. We've already looked at that on the top of, of Mount Olives, and, the, and that mountain will, will no longer be. There will be a, a plateau. There will be a valley there, a way for the people to escape. Now, I mean, people's not going to expect all that to happen. They're not going to expect him to come. And then people who are gathered together and him kill them all, they're not going to expect any of that. But it's going to happen. How do we know? Because he said it was. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Now, here's how we know that the second part of the verse relates to the second coming. If you would look with me at verse number 2. So, the first thing is the reporting in verse number 1. So look with me at this in verse number 2. And we're going to see the refining. Actually, verse 2 and 3. Watch this now. But who may, be, but who may abide the day of his coming? Or who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. What's going on here? Mm. Let me go ahead and read verse number 3. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, and that they may offer unto the Lord an offering of righteousness. Now, let me pause here for a second. Let me just say this. Do you remember why the Lord was so, so adamant in the first two chapters about Levi? Because their offerings were not satisfactory. Their worship was unsatisfactory. They were, they were not handling the temple, uh, the operation of the temple in a satisfactory way or in a righteous way. And God's fed up with them. So here's what's happening in verse 2 and 3. There's the refining process. What is that? That is a time of fire, a time of judgment to remove all of the impurities. All right, are you with me? Okay, so look at this. Back up, verse 2. Who may abide in the day of his coming? Who's going to be able to stand? Who's going to be able to live in the day of his coming? Who's coming? Well, Jesus coming. That's who we're talking about, right? So who's going to be able to live during the days of, of Jesus coming? Hey, don't forget this. And I know we talked Sunday about the population of the earth being like 8.1 billion people right now. Can you imagine two-thirds of them dying like that? Now, remember that every 60 seconds, there's 260 people born into the world. Every 60 seconds. Can you imagine in just the snap of a finger, two-thirds of them died? Well, that's what's going to happen. So, I ask the question, who's going to be able to abide? Who's going to be able to live? Who's going to be able to stand when He comes? Ooh. So... That in mind, that's, that's the question that Malachi is asking. Well, watch, watch what he says now. Second part, the middle part of verse 2, And who shall stand when he appeareth? When Jesus comes back, who's going to be able to stand? And we just talked about that. When he comes back in the Revelation, Revelation 19, we call that the Revelation, he comes back in power and glory, riding a white horse, and we're with him. Woohoo! All right, glory, all right. 
All right, everybody got the spurs on and the, you know, and all that, right? Ready? All right, so we're, we're, we're riding on the white horses. We're with Jesus. All right, here we come. And we ain't got to do anything. All right? We're just there with him. The Bible talks about there's a host coming with him. And we're there. All right, we're getting to be able to see this. But we don't have to do anything because, hey, listen, just by the word of his power, just by the spoken word of his power, whew, they're gone. Who's going to be able to stand at his appearing? Now, let me connect something here. We're told in the Word of God that we will stand before Him in judgment. Right? All right, everybody, we all have a place. We all have a spot. We're going to stand before Him in judgment. The believer and the unbeliever. So who, if we put those two questions together, who's going to be able to abide? Who's going to be able to live, survive, and who's going to be able to stand? Well, everybody will stand, but not everybody's going to live. Does that make sense? All right, here's why. The second part, the last part of verse 2. For he is like the refiner. Now, what does a refiner do? <laughs> the refiner, that process... He sits by the fire, and he has a device as he watches the smoke come up. And sometimes he'll take a, a, a device and he'll stick it, and it does, it's not consumed by the fire, whether it's gold or silver. And he will take and he will go underneath that dross or the impurities in the, the metal, whether it's the gold or the silver, and he will lift it up. When he lifts it up, you know what happens to it? It ignites and a flame. <laughs> Huh? Because it, it can't handle the heat. The dross can't handle the heat. So, so that it burst into a flame. And when it bursts into a flame, it's totally consumed. So that refiner sits there and all he's doing is he's trying to get the impurities out to make it pure gold. Job said, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as what? Gold. So what Jesus is doing here, what the Lord is doing is he's sitting there over the fire. Where's the fire at? <laughs> the, the judgment of God is the fire. And he is getting the, 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 the impurities out. Because Paul talks about our judgment, our, all of our deeds when they, uh, as they are consumed. How, how will they be consumed? You know, you take the wood, the hay, and the stubble, what happens to them? Impurities. All that's consumed. And Jesus is doing that. He's the refiner. Then there's a reference here to the fuller soap. Everybody understand that refiner process? There's much more to that. But that's kind of in a nutshell what happens. Then he talks about the fuller soap. What is that? That's just a, 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 another aspect of washing and keeping things clean. All the impurities out. This is what God wants. God wants there to be a pure people. Right. A pure people. A pure people can only be pure because of the righteousness of God. We can't do it. So what has to happen is that we have to go through the fire. We have to go through the judgment. And we have to be washed with the 
fuller's soap, if I can use the term of Malachi, and refined as the gold so that all the impurities in our life are consumed in that flame and disappear into nothing. And that's what God wants. And that will happen. No unrighteousness can exist in the face and the sight of God. None. So when we get to heaven, I, I mean, when God looks at us, how does He look at us? Clothed in His righteousness. God, He sits on the throne of His judgment as a refiner sits there and watches, washes that. And the fuller, that's that method of watching, washing it. Essentially, God's demand is that there be purity. It was often used the fuller soap and that process was used for ceremonial cleansing back in the book of Leviticus. So, so God is looking not just to liberate and to bring benefits, but He's looking for one thing, one, one thing else, okay? And that is to search the hearts and the lives of individuals to make sure the impurities are out so they can be used. Look at this in verse 3. Let me just mention this. I'm running out of time. I'm sorry. Look at this, verse 3. And he shall sit as a refiner and purify of silver, and he shall purify the sons of who? Now, let me ask you a question. Why is he starting with Levi? Remember chapter 1 and 2? Uh, Levi done messed up. Okay. Le- Levi, Levi, even though they were the only ones that said, the only ones that said, Moses, we're going to stand with you. And God chose them to be the, 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 uh, the leaders of the religious part of Israel. Yet here we find earlier, chapter 1 and 2, that they are the ones that have... Uh, they've messed up in the sacrifices and in the worship. So God, we got to start with the worship. We got to start with the sacrifices and the worship. Get that corrected. So He's going to start with the sons of Levi, and He's going to correct them. Look at the rest of verse number three, and I'll be done. All right. So He's going to uh, He shall purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering of righteousness. The reason he's starting with Levi is because the worship has to be right. Because they had not been offering righteous sacrifices. And God says, we got to correct this first. So anyway, I'm going to stop here. I've only gotten halfway through what I want to get through tonight. But that's okay. We needed the information about the preparation that Jesus has made. And the person that he used in that process. all right, And the purifying and all that. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we're thankful, Lord, for your, uh, your blessings on us. And, and uh, for the lesson tonight. I ask, Lord, that you would use these thoughts and these things that we've learned this evening to be helpful. Uh, Lord, may it, uh, again, encourage our lives and be more prepared for the day of your coming. We love you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.